You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse joins the Post to talk about his harsh criticism of the FBI as a partisan, Republican-friendly institution amid the agency's extensive investigation into the January 6th siege on the U.S. Capitol. Let's listen. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jackie Alemany, author of the Washington Post early morning newsletter, Power Up. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome back to our series. I'm thrilled to introduce our guest today, Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Welcome back to the Washington Post Live, Senator. Thank you. Good to be with you. Uh, and before I put you on the spot about your favorite restaurant slash oyster in Rhode Island, I want to dive right into the news. Um, you have owned an issue in D.C. that many have long ignored, the issue of climate change. You've led senators into overnight sessions, warning of the dangers of climate change. You've taken aim at both President Trump and Obama over missed opportunities to combat climate change. And you delivered near weekly addresses for nine years that you just recently retired um, on the issue. President Biden has obviously made combating climate change a priority in his administration, um, saying that it's an essential element of U.S. foreign policy and national security in particular. However, we're already seeing the administration backtrack and not follow through on some of their promises. Are you concerned that President Biden and the administration is already undercutting and deprioritizing the, the fight to combat climate change? I'm not. I mean, I think so far so good. The early executive orders were very good. Uh, the early nominees were very good. And the message to the nominees who aren't, you know, traditional climate positions um, was take climate seriously. So General Austin over at DOD, his message to President Biden is take climate seriously. So I think all of that has been good. Um, obviously, we've had to deal with, you know, the pandemic and we've had to deal with the COVID legislation. So the real test coming up is going to be build back better and how ambitious the Biden administration will be in that piece of legislation, what their target's going to be in terms of uh, climate change reduction, um, and how much they're willing to spend and how much they're willing to pay for it. So all of those things are still to be determined, but I put us on a very good trajectory and I remain uh, happy and confident. Well, I just want to push you on a few uh, of these issues, though, and decisions sure. that the administration has recently made, which is, you know, in uh, a great piece by Lisa Friedman in The New York Times outlined a series of decisions um, as it relates to, you know, Mexico earlier this month passed an energy bill that the administration didn't weigh in on publicly. They haven't pushed yet. They haven't pushed back yet on the world's largest fossil fuel project, a pipeline from uh, Russia to Germany. Um, and last week, despite fierce protests from climate activists, they allowed a, an Australian foreign minister to get be named the director of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Uh, how do you square these with the campaign's promises to prioritize uh, you know, the fight against climate change and getting to the administration's goal of net zero emissions by 2050? Yeah, I think the focus in the first instance um, needs to be on our domestic work. After four years of, of Trump, um, we've got really damaged international credibility. So I think it's really important to show to the rest of the world, particularly before Glasgow, which is gonna be the next big, serious international occasion on climate, um, that we really have done something big at home that we've really changed, that we're really in this, and that we can be trusted. So along the way, you look at the Russian gas pipeline 
you know, we have a lot going on with the countries that are invested in that. In Europe, we have a lot going on with Russia. And I'm not going to fault the administration for not putting the climate feature of that pipeline uh, ahead of all the diplomatic and security things that they're going to have to work through as a new administration with a new secretary of state. I think that there's an order here. And the first is get a really strong administration dedicated to this task, get a really good bill passed with Build Back Better, have a really strong Glasgow that puts Paris to shame and really launches the world onto a safe trajectory, and then come back and clean up whatever else we need to do legislatively to comply with uh, the Glasgow agreements. And we're on that trajectory, so I'm, I'm pretty comfortable. So then on the domestic component of this, uh, you know, back to this net zero goal of net zero, the goal of net zero emissions by 2050, uh, an important part of this conversation is obviously implementing a carbon tax, which you've crafted legislation on. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said it could be the most effective and efficient way to curb and reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Biden's advisors have said, said that this is on the table. Is this something that you're working with the administration on? Uh, have you advised them on the path forward with getting this done? Yeah, my advice um, has been that they should set high goals and help convene and coordinate and try to make sure that the American corporate business community comes to the table. Um, but let Congress do some work to figure out what the mix is. They don't need to get out front on a lot of detailed policies that the Republican and fossil fuel attack machine is going to try to do them, you know, rhetorical damage with. What they need to do is keep the progress going, move together. To me, the most important thing they can do now is to try to convene the American business community, which has completely sucked on climate in Congress. You know, at best, they've been doing zero. At worst, they've been supporting really horrible trade associations that have been the worst climate obstructors in America. And so, you know, the, the talk from the business community has changed, but they've really got to show up in Congress to help Republicans get to where they need to get if we're going to get this done. And they're not here yet. They have not showed up in any serious way in Congress. So to me, that's a really important first step. And that's the key piece of advice I have been giving the Biden administration. Get the business community in and put them to the task of delivering Republicans and making it darn clear to Mitch McConnell that this isn't the same old days any longer where they're going to smile and pay no attention while he leads climate obstruction. That, that's a really interesting point. And uh, it actually you know, brings to light, I think, some recent announcements made by GM and other automakers um, by who have publicly committed to all electric futures around the year 2035. But Simultaneously, it's also been reported that they're still fighting and working with industry associations to advocate for standards that are weaker than Obama-era levels, um, and yep. even the compromise uh, of California standards for fuel economy and greenhouse emissions. Uh, you know, I guess, what do you want to see the Biden administration do to get those automakers to the table prior to 2035 um, and potentially get them to do in the next five years? That's what has been frustrating about uh, dealing with the trade associations and the corporate community on climate, because what they say usually is very good. And what many of them are doing inside their corporate precincts is in many cases really good. 
But then they come to Congress and they don't align their lobbying with what they're telling the public. They're on two different tracks. On the public track, they're all about climate change and all about getting ready for this transition to a clean energy future. And then they come to Congress and it's, hey, we got this tax thing we want. Oh, don't worry about the climate stuff. We can, you know, it's not our, we're not, we're not that serious about it. And that is really frustrating because we need to have a strong bill in Congress if we're going to solve the climate crisis. There is no way that we do this around Congress without us doing something. So the corporate America world not bothering to show up in Congress on climate is really consequential. And thankfully, that is beginning to change, just beginning. Do you think something can get done to get them as bigger stakeholders sitting at the table to get a carbon tax incorporated uh, in the Biden administration's $2 trillion infrastructure plan, potentially? Yeah, I think there's a lot that can be done to get them more engaged uh, and um, to more ambitious about what we can do. Um, the first thing is that for a lot of them, this has moved from being public relations and uh, consumer relations and shareholder relations this is now in the business model, you know, for big agriculture, not knowing how seasons work and when rains come is really devastating. And they are now deeply, deeply involved for the financial community, the concerns about system, systemic economic crashes caused by the carbon bubble bursting. That really wipes out their business model for, you know, a decade if it happens. So that's why they're so engaged, but they haven't taken that engagement and actually deployed it in Congress. There's a lag. And, you know, I'll tell you, I think part of the lag is that I doubt these CEOs actually knew what their political shops were up to. I think if the CEOs of some of these big companies knew what the political footprint of their own company was, they'd be horrified. And I, I just want to put a button on the climate portion of this conversation really quick with all of this being said, you know, we are uh, I'm sorry, my puppy's having a case of the zoomies at a really convenient time right now. Um, uh, but it's really cute. Um, we are halfway through the first 100 days of this administration's, um, uh, you know, uh, first 100 days. Um, you have suggested holding up nominations if you didn't feel that they were doing enough on climate. Is that something that you're still considering doing? And if you had to give uh, the president a grade on his action on climate, what would that grade be right now? I think he's still in, you know, solid A material, knowing that none of the big exams have come yet. So this is like he's got his first homeworks done, and they're all really good. They're all A homeworks. But the big exams are coming up, and that's where the Biden administration will prove itself. And um, I think there are a great number of us in the uh, Senate who feel that this is the time we have to get this done. And we're going to be answerable to generations if we fail. So, you know, we're deadly serious about this. As alert as we are to the problem of the fossil fuel funded, you know, climate denial and obstruction crooked apparatus that we're up against, we still are going to fight to get this done. Now, on the filibuster, I'm sure you saw Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell issue a not so veiled threat to you and your colleagues this morning that uh, getting rid of the filibuster would not open. Uh, up an express lane to liberal change. 
Um, obviously, he's given some thought to this. Where do you stand on the filibuster? You know, I think there's so much attention that obviously gets placed on Senator Cinema, Senator Manchin, and and their opposition to getting rid of it. Uh, but where do you stand, and and how do you think anything gets done going forward without getting rid of the filibuster? Well, I think um, if the first thing we do is to say just like generally, let's get rid of the filibuster. Um, I think you'll see more senators than just Manchin and Cinema on our side not willing to go along with that. But I think once you take it and play it through a bit, so that let's say the reform bill, the government reform bill, HR1, gets blockaded and obstructed and it looks like it's bad faith, and then maybe we take a couple of pieces of it and try them and they get blockaded and obstructed and it's in bad faith, then at some point people begin to think, okay, this is ridiculous. The American public wants this. We got elected to do this. And a minority that represents a small minority of the population is stopping what the majority and the public want from going forward. That's not right. And then we can address that problem you know, as it comes up. We do have the side door of reconciliation which allows a great deal to be done without having to worry about the filibuster. So we have two fronts to work on. One is pressing the filibuster forward, the problem, and try to find a solution to it, which isn't gonna come just by day one declaration. And then two, um, use reconciliation. We've got three of them. We used one on COVID. We got one more for Build Back Better if we have to, and we got one more after that, all in this Congress. So we can still be very ambitious, even if we don't succeed on reforming the filibuster. So you are in favor of using budget reconciliation to push through the infrastructure package that the Absolutely. administration is? If necessary. Yeah. I mean, if the choice the Republicans give us is do nothing or use reconciliation, that's a very, very easy choice. And they've played the you know peanuts game of Lucy with the football to lure us to come and play bipartisanship with them so often that they've really burned their credibility with Democrats. So. If they want to be bipartisan, they're going to have to show some real good faith on their side in order to convince us this isn't yet another swing at the football with Lucy pulling it away at the last minute. So basically your position is let's give Republicans a few more chances to demonstrate that they might be acting in good faith. And if not, then let's abolish the filibuster. Well, then for sure, let's use reconciliation and then we can decide whether we need to abolish the filibuster or do we change the rule, actually, so the onus of effort is on the filibuster, on the blockade, as opposed to right now where you can essentially phone in a filibuster and keep the majority, elected by the majority of the people, tied up on the Senate floor and able to do anything and having to show up all the time for quorum calls. So the, the balance of the filibuster is something that might be the adjustment rather than the elimination of it. Remains to be seen. We've got to fight our way through it to find our way. And you have been very critical of the way the Supreme Court handles its business. You want the high court to change the way it handles amicus briefs, um, which is people brought in as friends uh, of the courts in order to advise on a case. Why is this important? Well, it's important because right now, probably the most consequential influence seeking uh, in America is not done by lobbyists. Um, it's done by people showing up in the Supreme Court and asking the Supreme Court to make decisions in their favor. And they very often come in as amici curiae, friends of the court. And what has developed 
is that very, very big, particularly right-wing interests, will send in little fleets of amici, like 10 or a dozen at a time into a case. And they won't disclose to the court that they're all getting money from the same sources. And they don't disclose to the court that they've coordinated, or as one memo said, orchestrated their appearance. And the parties and the public and the justices don't really know who's actually in the room because you have these organizations that were built just to be amici curiae. They're not a real organization like the you know, American Medical Association that might file a brief. And so it's gotten really putrid, frankly, and the court's in a great position to clean it up because it has a rule that ostensibly requires this disclosure and they just haven't enforced it. Um, and uh, the bigger picture seems to be, which, which you just noted, is that you believe money is corrupting justice at the Supreme Court. Um, you titled your hearing on this issue, What's Wrong with the Supreme Court? The Big Money Assault on Our Judiciary. Uh, in what other ways do you think money is corrupting the system? Well, the worst way was taking over the process for judicial appointments uh, during the Trump administration. The Trump administration gave to a private organization a private organization, basically the gatekeeper role for who they would appoint to the United States Supreme Court. And while that private organization was the gatekeeper to the Supreme Court, it was taking huge donations, like over $10 million, big, big, big donations. And then it wouldn't report who the donors were. And it was completely non-transparent about how it was executing its gatekeeper function. So anybody in their right mind who's been around politics would realize, oh, that looks like big donors are coming in and giving big donations to this private group in order to have access or control at the turnstile as to who gets on the court. And when three judges in a row go through that special interest controlled turnstile, that casts a cloud over the whole court. And it's really important, I think, that that stop, which it has now under Biden, but also that we understand exactly what went on so that it never, never happens again. You can go around the world and you will not find any place where the government has turned over the turnstile onto its Supreme Court to a private organization that then fundraises in the tens of millions for access to that turnstile. And you dabbled on this subject, but I'm not sure you've explicitly said whether or not you support this. Um, but on the topic of the Supreme Court, do you still think that the Biden administration should add an additional seat to put a, a Democratic SCOTUS uh, on the court? I'm not arguing for that yet, but I certainly wouldn't rule it out. The way I think of this is the way a lawyer would think going in before a judge and asking for some form of extraordinary relief from the judge. Fine, I may be entitled to that relief, but the first thing I've got to do is I've got to make my case. And we as Democrats, I think, have to make our case better to the public why it is that things have gone awry at the court, how it went wrong, who did it, you know, tell the story and tell the truth about it all. And then I think we can make smart decisions about what needs to be done to put the court back onto the straight and narrow again. But the first thing to do is to get out the evidence and tell the story and make the case. And that's what I'm trying to do. And I want to ask you about New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, who is on week three of the scandal 
that has imploded in New York um, with regards to allegations of sexual misconduct, along with the Cuomo administration's um, hiding of nursing home data that undercounted the amount of deaths that occurred due to the coronavirus pandemic in nursing homes because of the governor's policies. Is it time for him to resign? Well, to me, he's New York's problem. And New York has a perfectly good attorney general who's looking into this. And New York has a perfectly good legislature that is looking at impeachment over this. And I'm satisfied with New York taking care of this situation. It's not Congress's business, it's New York's business. And I'm, I'm curious just from a, a more, a broader perspective on this, because I know that you were one of the Democrats who wanted Senator Al Franken, who resigned uh, amid a cloud of allegations, um, that you thought that he didn't receive fair due process from your colleagues in the Senate. Has it, did, did Al Franken's um, predicament and situation change your perspective or is it guiding your attitude towards Cuomo and the way sexual misconduct allegations should be handled when it comes to public officials? Um, I'd like to think that it's a more constant thread than that. Um, you know, you can go all the way back to the Westerns where the mob shows up at the jail and wants to hang the guy inside and the sheriff has to stand out on the, on the front porch and say, nope, you're not coming in. And um, until the person gets his trial and then gets hung fair and square. So that's the, uh, the kind of American backdrop to all of this. And you're absolutely right that Al Franken did not get any process at all. This was simply done by uh, pressure um, from uh, other senators in the caucus. And I think we can do better than that. I think we should do better than that. And I think that applies quite across the board, well beyond situations of the, you know, the specific situations you mentioned. We're a country that believes in people getting their day in court. So I'm wondering the, what your take is on the victims here and, and the women who have come forth uh, with their allegations and said that, uh, you know, they don't believe that the governor is, is fit to serve anymore. I applaud them. I think, you know, having done these cases before as a U.S. attorney and attorney general, um, I applaud them. I think their courage is, is wonderful. I know how hard it is for witnesses to come forward in these circumstances, and they have an attorney general to take that testimony to who can make the case, and they have the ability to present it to the uh, elected officers of the state of New York who have the power to impeach this governor if he's not fit to serve. So um, I encourage them to keep going and make the process work for them. That, to me, is the way in a, in a rule of law country that this works out. But it's really important to stand up for these witnesses and to encourage and applaud them. I can't tell you how many people came forward after the Kavanaugh hearings to tell me stories about events that had happened decades ago in their lives that they never told anybody before, but suddenly felt the need to disclose to me and how much it had burdened their lives not to have told that story earlier. So. Um, Victims telling their stories is something we need to respect and acknowledge. And uh, on a completely separate note, you've been very critical of FBI Director Christopher Wray for his handling of the January 6th attack on Capitol Hill. What's your specific complaint regarding what the FBI did and, and didn't do on that day? Actually, I'm okay with him on uh, January 6th. My biggest grievance with him is the stonewall of our questions about 
FBI, uh, potentially FBI misconduct, um, and for years, him simply refusing to answer during the Trump administration. And, you know, as the request piled up, just no answer, no answer, a complete uh, blow off. I do want to make sure that the investigation and the prosecution from January 6 looks upstream and doesn't only go to the people who are actually in the Capitol on that day. If you look at aiding and abetting theory of criminal law, or if you look at who might have funded this and have been a, a conspirator in it through funding it, or simply, you know, just being the organizer or the rabble rouser, or the inciter, there are a whole, there's a whole circle of accountability around this event that I want to make sure is explored. And we don't only look at people who are in the building on that day, because it may go well beyond that. Uh, and how do you think President Biden uh, and Christopher Wray, for, for that matter, are doing overall on domestic terrorism and the threat of white supremacy um, that we saw play out on January 6th and that additional threats um, have uh, emerged since then? Yeah, well, it is certainly amped up. There is uh, There are significant indications that under the Trump administration, the Department of Justice and the FBI dialed down its interest in white supremacist and white militia groups and dialed up its interest in Antifa and Black Lives Matter groups, even though the evidence was that by far the greatest risk to national security was the white militia groups, the right wing groups. Um, but because of the relationship between some of those groups and the Trump administration, they didn't want to investigate them. So we need to get to the bottom of that and figure out what the truth is in that regard. Because if they pulled back funding for you know, undercover investigations, if they didn't develop cooperating witnesses, if they didn't do the work of infiltration and surveillance that one does with a dangerous organization in the country for political reasons, that's not a good thing. And, and what do you think the next steps uh, in this investigation are? Are there any witnesses that we haven't heard from yet who you want to hear from? I think um, at this point it would be, you know, I've, I've, I've done that work before. And um, I think that the conversations within the Department of Justice of how this investigation should be directed are very properly being kept close hold and private as law enforcement sensitive. So I don't really need to know more. I think the assurance that I need is that when they are evaluating the witness testimony and the evidence that they gathered about January 6, they're also looking at who might have instigated or uh, conspired to support the attack on the Capitol and that they're using the existing well-known theories of accountability uh, for people who weren't necessarily at the scene of the crime to make sure that we've got the whole picture. And that I will trust Merrick Garland to do, um, bearing in mind that as somebody who's in the legislature, I really don't get to look into their uh, workroom while they're doing that work. Um, and I, uh, we only have a few minutes left, but I do wanna touch on the stimulus really quick because you were disappointed when the $15 minimum wage was um, ruled out of bounds by the Senate parliamentarian. I'm wondering what the next steps are to getting this done. Is it including it? Um, is it trying to get it included into infrastructure? 
again, going through the parliamentarian process. Uh, what are your conversations with the White House like on this topic? You know, I have heard um, the argument that some people think right now, just in the Democratic Party generally, there seems to be a bit of a schism that the government should be bearing the burden of uh, additional costs rather than private companies being forced to, to raise the minimum wage here. So I'm wondering overall, you know, why you think it's important for the government to get this done. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are a couple of ways that we can go forward. The administration can go forward with federal contractors. Uh, they don't have to go through Congress for that. We can explore the hints of bipartisan interest that we received. Uh, Senator Graham, for instance, expressed some, uh, I thought, pretty heartfelt interest in proceeding to uh, raise the minimum wage to some degree uh, in our recent budget committee hearing. So I think that's another way to go, see if we can find a bipartisan path. And then if push comes to shove, we have to see you know, what we need to do to deal with this in the kind of rough bare knuckle legislative battles that we have ahead. Uh, but the administrative route and the bipartisan route uh, are worth exploring as we tee this up. Uh, and, you know, lastly, I just want to touch on the topic again of um, Senator Manchin and Kristen Cinema, who have sort of emerged as really influential senators with a narrowly, um, you know, democratically controlled uh, Senate. Um, how have, have you, you know, spoken with them privately, privately at all or tried different tactics towards working with them to push through legislation that you realize the Biden administration is going to have a, a tough time getting through without their support? You know, they are key swing votes, um, but they're also a very important part of our caucus and we work well together on a lot of issues. Um, my biggest concern right now is how much climate stuff we can get into Build Back Better. And my conversations uh, with both of them have been fine. You know, the devil's always in the details and it's always where the rubber hits the proverbial road. Uh, but for now, I'm, you know, quite satisfied moving forward. The one thing I'd add is that if you look at the um, minimum wage vote, all of that was being hung on Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema as if they were the only two. But when the actual vote got taken on Senator Sanders' amendment, there were eight Democrats who weren't there. So, you know, they may be taking a little bit more heat um, as if it was just the two of them than they deserve. There could actually be more people in the caucus who have similar cautions. So for us to do our job as legislators to work our way through that is part of why we're here. And before we go, are there any Republicans that you think you can work with on climate change? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I would say uh, 10 to 12 uh, with whom I've had regular private conversations. Their problem is that the business community whom they work with isn't showing up and telling them that they're serious. And the fossil fuel industry is still threatening them. So they're in a tough position if their allies aren't coming out onto the field to help them. Uh, and, and do you want to name any names on those Republicans that you think you can you can get something done with? I mean, there's, you know, there's some pretty obvious ones of people who've, who've been supportive before. I mean, you know, I'm working with Michael Braun on a very significant agriculture bill. Uh, Senator Graham campaigned for the Republican nomination on a plausible uh, climate platform. Senator Murkowski has been a leader in all of this because of the exposure of Alaska. Uh, I think anybody who has a coast is starting to realize that this is really serious for them. So I'm, um, I'm actually pretty bullish on if their 
business community actually shows up and shows up like they mean it, that we can get pretty substantial bipartisan support. And unfortunately, Senator, that's all the time we have today. I apologize again. My dog, Bertha, is losing her teeth, and a few actually fell out while we were talking. <laughs> but um, thank well, you so much for joining us. I'm glad she joined us. Uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Please join us again tomorrow at 11 a.m. Um, when my colleague Paige Cunningham will examine lessons learned from the pandemic. Her guests are going to include Dr. Kurt Newman, the president and CEO of Children's National Hospital and author Lori Garrett. You can always head to the WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find out more about our programming going forward for the rest of the week. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.